Great news for Informed Pregnancy Plus subscribers. Dive into our Core Connection course included with your subscription. Hosted by Natalie Headings, a pre- and postnatal exercise specialist and ACSM certified personal trainer, she's an incredible teacher. This five-video series equips you with essential insights to understand what your pelvic floor and core are, how they work, and how to enhance pelvic floor and core strength and proper function during and after your pregnancy and birth. Learn about pelvic floor basics, key postural adjustments, effective muscle releases, and breathing techniques for a healthier core and floor. Don't wait. Visit informedpregnancy.tv and get started with the invaluable core connection today. Welcome to the Informed Pregnancy and Parenting Podcast. You're listening to Breach Babies 101, Part 3, with my guests, Dr. Barry Brock, Beth Cannon, Susan Minnick, and Dr. Milo Shavira. So I saw a um, high-risk doctor last week to get my first ultrasound after my midwife felt that the baby was probably breech. And I'm sorry, that was two Tuesdays ago, 34 weeks. And she started questioning me about my diet and my sugar intake, and I got tested for the third time for gestational diabetes, and it was negative, and I got really stressed out and paranoid. <laughs> I also um, was told that the weight was perfect at the time, and nine days later today, when I found out that the baby at that moment had its head down, I have no idea what position it's in right now, um, I was told that it weighs the same amount as it did as nine, nine days ago. Days ago. So, Weight, which makes me think well, of more fluid, not more first-time mothers. But I'm going to tell you, there's multiple studies out, and second-time mothers, not first-time, between doctors, mothers, and ultrasound. By far, the most accurate are mothers. Not first time, they're clueless. But second time <laughs> is a big or small in the previous kid. And there's so much more accurate than all of us. So I'm going to tell you, take with a big grain of salt when an ultrasound or someone tells you that. It's very difficult to predict the weight. I would also like to jump in on this part as, a, as an, the ultrasound specialist in the room. You know, there's this incredible over-reliance and over-interpretation on the value of the ultrasound. Mm -hmm. Like, we, we have these measurements, like measuring the amniotic fluid. Uh, it's very inaccurate. Uh, you know, you, 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 made, you made this comment that, you know, last week you were nine, 21 and, you know, now this week you're 19. That it's, it's the same. The precision of the measurement is not that high. The correlation between this amniotic fluid index and actually how much fluid is in there is not that high. This is all really just kind of a rough you know, estimate. So when I hear you tell me that, that the fluid was 21, what I hear in my mind is it's normal. End of story. There, there's, there, there's, there's no difference between you know it's 22 and 17 mm -hmm. and nine. This is all. It's just normal. But my uh, question, what I'm, what I was sort of getting at is, is low birth weight correlated with excessive fluid? Is there a relation? Actually, the other the way, the other way around. Um, if you take uh, populations of mothers 
who have uh, excess amniotic fluid, one of the things that you'll finally co- commonly find is a big baby. So there is a relationship between, and, and it kind of makes sense, a bigger baby is going to make more water. Um, but you don't always find that. Uh, you, the, the other thing that you very, very commonly find when you have excess amniotic fluid is you find nothing. You find a totally normal, healthy baby. Now, when you, as, you, as the fluid starts to get more and more and more and more, then you do start to find you know, some, some, some problems, you know, fetal anomalies and so forth. But um, even in these cases where we have you know, milder degrees of excess fluid, most of the time what you got is a totally normal you know, pregnancy. And in, in your case, the, you know, the, you know, the, this conversation is not even relevant because your fluid is just <laughs> normal. normal range. Just Again, normal. above the only adequate. Thing I do tell my patients is your fluid's up the fluid is because it's very important to me because when I deliver the baby after the baby I have to watch out because I can really snorkel. get so wet. You need a snorkel. It just flies yeah. at it. All yeah. this fluid comes. Mm-hmm. Oh, fuzz. I remember now <laughs> you had the extra Make fluid sure. and mm-hmm. I had to just watch it because the baby comes out and it all comes flying yep. out. Mm-hmm. And that's the biggest concern I have. I've been noticing lately actually a lot of the OBs d- don't even offer the ECV anymore which is what happened to Fabriola who was just here. They just they just skip on onto uh, onto the cesarean, and I sort of feel like it's on its way out. Well, hopefully not. Um, I, I hope not. It's a great technique, and it can be, you know, even you, I, you know, I run 60%, but even 30%, 40%, it's still a great technique, especially if they don't do vaginal breach deliveries. The only the option options is, is there in section. Well, I'm so. glad you brought that up. Our last topic that we want to talk about today is what if you've already done the chiropractic, the acupuncture, the massage, the pulse, the tilt, the positional exercises, and you've rubbed marmalade in a counterclockwise position on your belly button, and you've done an ECV and none of it has worked. Um, what are your options after that? I know commonly the only option is given schedules is airing at 39 weeks, but I feel like there's, there's more options than that. What options do you, um, do you offer? In my mind, the three basic ideas are, one, uh, do what your doctor says, which is schedule the cesarean section, and that's the plan. At 39 weeks? Uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, or you could stretch it out another you know week or two and give a little more time to see if the baby spontaneously turns but one option is basically go with the flow uh with the you know modern obstetric flow which is plan the cesarean delivery uh, option number two is to try to make some efforts to turn the baby uh so everything that we you know talked about today and you know try to increase the chance of getting the baby head down and option number three is uh, to plan for vaginal breach delivery. Okay, so before we get to vaginal breach delivery, uh, do you normally, if somebody wants to do a, if they're going to opt for the cesarean, do you prefer 39 weeks over waiting? Or what are No, I, I give them the option. I says you can schedule, th- anytime after 39 weeks, you can schedule it, or you can wait to go into labor. Is it the same if it's footling? Because you mentioned there's the issue. Well, of the if it's footling control. breach, is a different story. Especially then, my concern is if it's dilated. And if the water breaks. And the, well, if the, if she's not dilated, even the water breaks, not a big problem. Right. But if she's dilated, then in fact, you may even do something. That's one case. If she's failed aversion and she's got a footling breach, and she's like three centimeters dilated. That's the patient. 
I even do before 39 weeks. Sure. So then she ruptures, you're in big trouble. That's a rare case, thank God. Okay. So, you know. Rare that, that it would be footling and dilating. Right. Okay. So as long as it's not footling breach, you're comfortable waiting beyond 39 weeks. Yes. Benefits being maybe the baby will still turn. Well, the mother always likes the idea that something will happen. And it's exactly. possible. It is possible. And then, but but you also, said all these techniques you tried and failed, so it's less likely, but... Now, other doctors who are not comfortable with vaginal breech birth uh, sort of paranoid about beyond 39 weeks because if they go into labor, they don't have anything to do. Well, it's, then I that's usually, an emergency I usually, I like I like spontaneous labors versus intervening. So I usually like to go into labor. If I'm doing a breech labor, I like to go into spontaneous labor. I also don't do anything, and I don't care what's going on, until about six, seven centimeters. But that's after I get the six to seven centimeters, and she's in active labor, I want to see a gorgeously normal, perfect labor curve. I want to see the butt coming down. I want you dilating. And if it's not doing that stuff, this is not dragging it out for, oh, she's stuck at eight centimeters for six hours. No, that's a sign that Mother Nature is telling me this is not the case for you. And if she starts pushing, I want to see this butt coming down nicely. And that's the criteria that I use to make sure a safe vaginal living. Are there other criteria that you guys use b- beforehand that makes somebody more or less of a good candidate for a vaginal well, breech birth? There's a rare occurrence of the stargazer. So in other words, theoretically, the baby has a big goiter or something, the head is extended up and looking up to the stars. They call it stargazer effect. And then, because the baby has to flex its head and neck to come out. If it can't do that, and something's blocking it, that can present a problem. You tell that on ultrasound? You can tell them on ultrasound, but it's a rare event. No, how do you know it's not just a snapshot? They're just extending at that well, moment. Well, it's really, it's really... It's really st- stuck into a deep extension. It's a deep extension. The kid's neck's up, and you see okay. usually some mass is holding it back. And I also want to make sure this child, you know, she's diabetic, and the child's going to be 12 pounds. I mean, I'm not going to strive for vaginal Usually, order. I think the throughout the world, they're saying 4,000 grams... Roughly about nine under 4,000 grams, uh, maybe 4,500, well, depending on. I like the height of the mother. Mm-hmm. If someone's tall, it makes me feel so much nicer because <laughs> the pelvis is a bit, it goes by size. And the taller you are, that gives, you know, someone's four foot six and, uh, right. you know, from Guatemala, but it's her first kid. I'm not too thrilled to. Um, <laughs> the height of the mother because it's easier for birth or you're saying some of that weight is height, not girth. Well, because the pelvis is usually, I find the pelvis are bigger and taller women. Mother Nature makes it more space. More room. Okay. Yeah. Do you have a similar criteria, Dr. Shavir? You know, these one size fits all criteria just drive me absolutely bonkers and, you know, contributes to uh, just a very mindless practice style. So I think, you know, taking into account their obstetric history and their body size and what we think of the baby and doing more of an individualized approach. What are we worried about with a breech baby outside of umbilical cord prolapse, which we well, can rule out? Let me tell you, you need some good cojones liver vaginal breech delivery because everything's fine. <laughs> Beth until does the, it. <laughs> no, but, well. Yeah, Beth I, used to I, do. I, I, yeah, she's got I do. She's got, I do. she's got good cojones yeah, because let me tell you, after it comes down, you do not want to get this head stuck. Because then, because the cords beside that, you need to get this baby out. And you want from the umbilicus to the baby out, you want a reasonable amount of time. And these babies come out, and Mother Nature has a system. They come out, and they are a little depressed. They're not screaming immediately, but they perk up in a couple of minutes. It's fine. But if your baby gets trapped there, that's a problem. You know, and I... What's the problem? I, the, well, if the head doesn't come out, normally, 
if the head's coming down, the head can squeeze and mold in the bones and all those things, and it takes time. The same thing happened with beach delivery, but while it's doing it, the baby's dying because the cord's trapped. So you don't have that luxury of waiting to the to the head mold and squeeze itself out of there. You have to have a quick and efficient delivery. So that's why I use all these criteria of everything progressing very nicely. Now, you can, and I've had one time that the cervix went ahead and... Um, came down and was clamped down and you have to I like the experience you use help use Piper forceps or forceps designed to just get the baby around the baby and to pop it out uh, there's techniques I use lifting the baby up and there's different techniques you put your finger in the baby's mouth and rotate it and 98% of the time that's what happens do you use those techniques when you do breech cesarean not the piper, but I'm saying like the to get the. I mean, is yeah, it different to deliver? Yeah, but remember, if it's easy, I can always extend the incision, incision, incision section. That's right. easy. I can't do that in the pelvis. Do you end up? Do you end up cutting? Well, I mean, you could do a episiotomy to give you a little more space. But that's but not the episiotomy. It's, 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 it's more of the cervix. It's the cervix and it's the bones, the shape of the bones that do that. You don't have much room to do those things. So you have to have the experience to do that and have the forceps available to do those things. I also use the criteria for beach deliveries, which I like in patients. I like the comfortable because I have to manipulate sometimes. And most of my patients, I prefer them have an epidural. I don't insist upon it, but I prefer them have epidural so I can control them. Now, if they don't want to be activated, I can just have them positioned. So if i coming down and I need to do something, I can, I can manipulate and move around. Because you have to have the mother helping you out. She has to have, you know... The legs extended, you need some room. You can't have her jumping off the table because you're controlling. You don't have time. You don't have the luxury to do all these things because so it takes a lot of So for you, as long as long as labor starts relatively spontaneously and progresses at a normal once she gets she goes slowly till she gets to active phase. But once she gets to active phase of labor, it means six centimeters dilated, six to seven, and then I want to see the dilate go rapidly and the butts start coming down in a very good pattern. I did one patient did exactly that. Everything perfect. She failed version, everything else. And then she started pushing. After two hours of pushing, this butt did not come from zero station. And I sectioned her for a cesarean. nine and a half pound baby. Do you feel like there's a benefit to labor before doing a cesarean? Or is that a, a downside? Well, is, is it like double jeopardy? Oh, no, I had labor and well, now I still things. have to have a cesarean? Laboring before the cesarean section, it does thin out the lower end segment. It makes the repair, um, I think, more secure. Um, but it also increased your chance of infection. Um, there is some evidence now coming out to do a vaginal prep. In other words, put betadine in the vagina. We do a cesarean section. Someone's in labor. Okay. Um, but, you know, the infection rate, uh, when I was a resident and I rotated through um, county hospital, every one of my cesarean section got infected. Every single one of them. And then when I operated Cedars, my, my infection rate is extremely small, you know. So also, cesarean section accounting when I was a resident was like, like took two hours, and, and mine now takes 25, 30 minutes. So there's a big difference. Too. So th- this, is, this is a great question you ask about the, the pre-labor uh, cesarean versus a cesarean done that's after labor has started. And one of the problems with the obstetric literature is that historically, these two cases were not divided. It was just vaginal delivery versus cesarean section. Mm -hmm. So we were not really scientifically able to kind of address this question. Uh, But I think there's a growing appreciation for the fact that there are a lot of physiologic processes that happen, uh, both in the baby and the mother in, in the labor process, that are 
designed to help the baby transition from the in utero life to the you know out in the world life and also begin the breastfeeding process uh, and it's and it happens you know together with and during the labor process so um, there there now actually is some literature showing that the babies do better when you actually wait for the labor to start and then doing the cesarean compared to the ones you just do a cesarean and there's no sign of labor anywhere on the horizon and I think we're going to start to see you know more and more studies looking at that but there there actually may very well be some physiologic reasons why the ideal thing to do is wait till labor starts and you don't necessarily wait till they're deep inside labor. you know nine centimeters Ready 10 centimeters you know the, the baby's halfway out but you kind of wait for the labor process to start and then do the cesarean at that time so i think we're going to start hearing a lot more so that could this. be another benefit of not scheduling at 39 weeks even if you're planning to have a cesarean yeah but uh, waiting to go into labor I, I think also one thing that we maybe didn't mention was in terms of who's a better candidate and worse candidate is somebody who's already had a successful vaginal birth Which, uh, oh, even yes. just a, a vaginal head down baby, this is their second or third baby, and they've already I had think, one or two um, vaginal births. The more vaginal deliveries have this, I feel much more comfortable. It's much more easier. Everything goes much quicker. And the odds of the head entrapment. Uh, the reason why the literature doesn't back that up is because doctors used to think that, uh, well, because she had um, a previous vaginal delivery, oh, this one should make it. So they didn't look at the obvious, this one's not progressing, you know, things like that. So, you know, all of a sudden they're trying to drag out a 10-pound kid vaginally breach because she thought she should go like the other, she lived with two babies before. But not necessarily, you have to... But if she's look. had three, two seven-pound babies, now she has another roughly seven-pound yeah, baby. Absolutely, no um, question. And, but they're treated by medicine generally like the same as anybody else who's breached, schedule you for a cesarean at their Well, they weeks. do, but those... And listen, I've seen... They're rushing back to patient for cesarean section. Why she's brute? Why the butts on the perineum? Exactly. Oh my just God! Let it come Jesus, out. Do you let help them? Then, if you see that, do you help and, and well, with I, doing I the vaginal? I call back to help, but I don't. I, I'm not my patient. I can't. I'm, I know. You know, I can't intervene. But it's so it's upsetting not, can't, to see that. That's not protocol. I can't. I know. There are doctors oh. taking back for cesarean section. Well, oh, stop! I can do this vaginally. <laughs> you know, you can't do that. I think another thing that would address is twins because you brought it up briefly, or you did. It's so if, sad. if you have two babies and baby A, the first baby to come out is is vertex head down, and then the second baby is roughly the same size or smaller and breech. Um, a lot more doctors are comfortable delivering that those twins vaginally, and even if the second baby stays breech, they should be. But a lot are not, unfortunately. Yeah. Well, I would say I, I shouldn't say a lot. A handful more are comfortable with that after coming I, twin. Yeah. A few. That's breech. There's a few of them. And, but why do you say they should be more comfortable with it? Why is that not a concern like a regular breech baby, a singleton? Well, first of all, remember someone's already dilated everything open. It's there so usually the head doesn't get trapped it comes out as long as the second baby and usually second mates usually are smaller but they can be exception you know i had one patient that the ultrasonographers told me that the baby was a pound bigger and i delivered the first one and so i this one i personally did not do a breech extraction and after six hours i gave up and section with the second one it was yeah, a it pound happens. bigger but the head was i tried to bring the head down it wasn't coming it wasn't coming you know but but that's the patient. Normally, if I didn't know it was a pound bigger, I would have put her up and done a breech extraction. But So safer because if baby A comes out and baby B is roughly the same size or smaller, then it should just come out. The odds of getting trapped very small. What about the concern about the cord? Well, first, you don't draw your cord bloods, but uh, usually you go ahead and the cord should not be a problem. But I've over the years, I've had a due cesarean section for the second twin. But fortunately, it's not that common at parents. I maybe once or twice in my career. But 
It does happen. You're set up for that. Have you, I, I uh, do my vaginal, uh, my twin deliveries in a quota C-section room, but I do everything vaginally. Do so, you, um, do you, I, all of you, because you have experience with clients who have breech babies, do you have uh, patients who have had both vaginal breech birth and vaginal head down birth? Because one of the most common questions when somebody's considering this is that must be incredibly painful to deliver a vaginal breech birth. Um, do you have a comparison from patients who've done both about one being a lot more uncomfortable I, I've, or difficult? I've heard that it's just different. It's different. It feels different than the head first baby. So one, one of them said, or... and it was her sixth baby. Oh, and, right. And that baby, <laughs> it was like that. It was. It, it was like I basically. I almost missed it because I was thinking about what I might. What would I do if whatever? But you know, anyways, yeah. she just plopped out right uh, but mom afterward was like of the six that mm -hmm. was the most painful the breach yeah yeah i've i've had a handful say that handful most say it's just different not one's better or worse and a handful say that the breach was more comfortable with the soft butt pushing down there the whole labor we are going to take a quick commercial break don't go anywhere we'll be right back This episode is sponsored by an innovative product that's made a big difference for parents and babies alike, Dr. Mom Butt Bomb. As a parent of four, I've had my fair share of battles with diaper rash, often resorting to thick, unpleasant pastes. I only recently discovered Dr. Mom Butt Bomb, and I was immediately impressed by its pleasant consistency and ease of application. This pediatric-approved skin protectant is free from dyes, preservatives, and zinc oxide, making it perfect for your baby's sensitive skin. It's designed by a doctor who's also a mom, ensuring your little one gets the gentlest care. A small dab is all it takes to soothe and protect, avoiding the mess and hassle of traditional treatments. With ingredients like dimethicone and petrolatum, Dr. Mom Butt Bomb not only soothes, but also restores your baby's delicate skin. Available on Amazon.com and Walmart.com, it's the smart choice for every parent wanting to keep diaper rash at bay. Remember, with Dr. Mom Butt Bomb, nothing comes between you and your baby. Not even diaper rash. You have a final question? Yeah, I mean, maybe a two short, quick ones. Um, one, are most vaginal breech births done on the back? Or are there different positions that can be done when delivering a, a, a vaginal breech baby? And then my second question is, if it was done with the cesarean section, what exactly happens? How do you deliver the placenta then? Um, is there delayed cord clamping? Um, is it vaginal or is it pulled? You know, what, well, what you happens? Well, this is their section. You deliver the baby. You can uh, milk the cord or delay cord clamping and give the blood to the baby. And then you just, you, placenta comes out. That's the easiest thing in the world because it's right there. You just can, you can manually take it out of the uterus. Remember, you had a cesarean section. Mm -hmm. And the first question was Do you deliver Do on, vaginal on the breech back? babies yeah. I, always I, have to I, be on the I back? Use, I do my deliveries all the same way, usually. I do some on the side, things like this, but I usually like more control. I have a sitting up position I like to deliver at. Like gravity helped me, but that's me. But other different positions you can. But you do need access. Uh, access. With Dr. Shavir, if you deliver breach, is it different on the back for you versus um, 
versus a headbanger? Well, I, so I, I, th- I think probably most obstetricians are trained with the patient on the back, uh, and they're you know techniques for delivering in that position. But it, it's maybe that the best way to do it is on hands and knees. I don't know how you. I was that just going to say yeah. that there's a. Um, most OBs are trained because they were trained a while ago to do on the back, but there's a lot in, in Europe and in Australia, there's a lot of upright and hands and knees. Mm-hmm. Breach, Even for breach. Delivery. So now, okay. and I've done uh, upright and hands and knees as well. Because from what I understand, if you're hooked up or you have an epidural or you're hooked up, well, you can't, you have to be on that's your back. The thing. Well, but, right? I that's say, but then I know. heard you that's say, yeah, then I heard the midwife no, say even, that. Yeah, even Dr. Brock said he doesn't always have an epidural. Oh, okay. he, it's maybe his preference, but he, he leaves prepped, it up but to you. You, don't, you might not be You might not have any drugs in there either. Dr. Shavir and I had a beautiful delivery of breach. The patient's not flat on her back, but she was sitting up. Upright. She was upright with her feet on the foot pedals, but she had an epidural. But she was sitting up. She wasn't flat on her back. So she was up and pushing this way. And it was just, it was a beautiful birth. Yeah. You know, the other thing is that you just, I just find this so universal in medicine. These things that get said that are just untrue. You know, you uh, you hear this, if you have an epidural, then you can't move. And oh. I, you know, I think what happens is that uh, on labor and delivery, what they like to do is they put the epidural, they lay in the bed, they put a... Foley catheter into the bladder so that now we don't have to worry about, you know, when you have to pee. And then you just don't require any attention. You just lay there. And, uh, but, you know, in fact, I don't know if you've ever heard this term, the walk-in epidural. Um, But, you know, I've had patients that, you know, with an epidural and they're kind of laying there and they're uncomfortable. And can I just get up? And people are freaking out saying, how could you get up? There's no epidural. And we just get them up. So you can actually move when you have an epidural. And, yes. you know, it depends a little bit. The Sometimes the block is very dense. It also depends on and, on the uh, hospital policy. I, some, I yeah. know legal teams don't love when your legs are uh, sort of wonky and jello-y for you to, and you're in labor uh, for you to not have full control and be able to walk around, even if it's doable. Although with a walking I mean, some hospitals have a well, protocol. But you assist. You assist, but I'm just yeah, saying you don't say, the lawyer yeah, doesn't feel, care that feel, you're assisting. Yeah, feel free. Go ahead and get up. And then you go to, you you assist. You help them out. You're there to kind of protect them. And but then I've also heard that you can't eat or drink. That, well, you know, while you're in labor? With epidurals? Uh-huh. No, it depends. That's anesthesia. Like some when hospitals work, won't let you eat or drink. Most hospitals or, have that. That's a matter policy. of policy. I give clear liquids, and I've, I've, I've had many arguments with anesthesia, but the anesthesia department now is comfortable with us having clear liquids. I make tea for all my patients. I give them clear liquids. They don't give you food, a lot of food to eat, but if you have the epidural, if you have an epidural, oh, yeah. Well, even but in if, general, even in general, they, they don't, don't let like, you. When you're once you're in labor, some of the hospitals don't let you they eat don't at let all. You eat, Just but ice we try. chips. But we can I please have some ice chips? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, but we we have. Can a I have an opaque fluid? Okay. Yeah. But okay. I deliver a lot of all my patients are delivered on the side or on hands and knees with epidurals. I'm I can I do that all the time. And I teach the residents how to do that. In their and you don't have to be flat on your back no, just because never, you have an epidural. Yeah. Okay, so breach, you can still be in different positions. Yes. Okay. We are going to take a quick commercial break. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. <laughs> hey, everyone. It's Dr. Berlin, and I want to talk to you about something that is close to my heart. Literally. Omega-3. It's a crucial nutrient that's sadly overlooked. 
with 95% of women deficient needed, the supplement brand I trust, created their brand new Omega-3 Soft Gels. Designed by perinatal experts, they support you and your baby's well-being from fertility to pregnancy and beyond. Unlike other brands, Needed's Omega-3 is sustainable, pesticide-free, and third-party tested for purity. Plus, my favorite, it has a milder taste and smell, perfect for sensitive mamas. Don't wait. Visit thisisneeded.com and use code BERLIN to get 20% off your initial order. Experience the needed difference, consciously crafted for your health and the planet. All right. Did anybody have a final thought that you want to share on the topic of breech babies? My final comment is, can we figure out a way to train the doctors? Is there a way to reteach it on a grand scale in the country? Because I know it's been brought up a volume and this and that. Okay. So some location in America or some kind of funding or grant to get doctors and midwives but doctors because most people Mm -hmm. see doctors trained in the skill like it doesn't make any logical sense to me so our children i think are definitely going to say how did you let this happen how did you let this skill disappear completely because that's where it's it's actually it's yeah i agree with you it's it's a major problem and people and there's no one left my sense i'll tell you what i think my sense you asked are we going to be able to reteach this on a grand scale and if you mean by grand scale that it it becomes part of the skill set of your standard obstetrician i don't know that we'll ever you know get there again but uh you know, the practice of medicine is becoming increasingly specialized where you don't necessarily teach every physician how to do every therapy. You know, Mm -hmm. the surgeons don't do every surgeon that's out there, but they kind of specialize. So I think a place we may be able to get to is where, you know, every major city has a handful of uh, physicians and midwives who are able to offer this so that the practice is not completely dead and it becomes coordinated. Everybody in the city knows these are our breach providers and when I have a breach patient, I can counsel them appropriately instead of telling them this is too dangerous, it's not an option, Uh, we're just scheduling your C-section. You can actually outline what the options are and if you're interested in this one, uh, with breach vaginal delivery, there's a place where we can send you. There are people who are experts in that. Uh, hopefully, we can get to that place. And I think it's gonna. It's. I think we're gonna have to grab an opportunity that we have right now, which is that we have an older generation of providers who have the knowledge and the skill, and we're gonna have to have younger providers who have not yet been completely paralyzed by the medical legal fear and actually still have the interest in learning and serving the patient and basically grab that grab that Mm -hmm. that knowledge and skills so we can keep it alive my i had this secret dream that kaiser permanente because you have so many hospitals in southern california but i will say this kaiser invited us to show the film heads up um 
to a whole room full of obese and residents, and it was very well received. I wasn't sure, you know, when I show it to the midwives and doulas, it's a lot of hugs and kisses. I thought in the OB community, I thought I was going to get like rotten tomatoes, and it was very well received. I know, it was. And some of the uh, younger doctors and residents in particular were very, in, you know, curious, and, and one of them, I think, went to Germany. He's going. Year. He didn't he's go going to Germany to get some residents. training in, yes, in, in breach. Interested. Mm-hmm. So, I just had this little. I just had this little dream. Like you, you have so many patients, and a high volume of breach clients, uh, that if one Kaiser could be set as the breach center, you know, in Southern California, that had twenty-four hour breach coverage, and anybody who wanted to have a, a vaginal breach delivery would go to that one. It could become not only a place where people can go, but a place where people could train. It seems. It doesn't seem like it should be that hard to do that but it also seems like the hugest uphill battle well, it's, a, it's a big corporation I mean. and also there's nobody left as dr monroe said to me and i'm going to quote him he said to me the other day there's not enough institutional memory everybody is gone and the gener- the, the two generations there's no one left but there is but there are and people that's the thing. there's a few there's a handful but if and we even took in, that little ember and well he's like, willing to help yeah he is interested yeah. in that when i came to college we had to a breach team from a corporate level i mean right now if you well, happen to have the baby while he's there you know then you can have a vaginal we need birth. the patients you know? the, the we consumers have the we have the, the opposite right this, we need the, the consumers. consumers the consumers have to i'm sorry elliot go ahead. we had the opposite where a patient was scheduled to have a cesarean and she was i think she worked at kaiser right um a nurse and that's who um milo and i delivered. Yeah, that's, that's, that's our yeah, that's patient what i'm saying so when it was the opposite you, yes. she was all tried everything nothing worked baby was stuck for each scheduled her cesarean like a good little patient and um but guess what went happened? Into labor early. She went into labor early. And then like you like ran into her in the hall or something. What happened she, I there? did acupuncture on her the night before. And I this was like a blessing because when Milo and I came to work at eight o'clock in the morning, no patients came to labor and delivery. We had no patients. She came in. She kept dilating. And it was like, oh, can't we do a vaginal delivery? Can't we do a vaginal delivery? And Milo was so good with her. And she said, I really want to have this birth, but it wasn't happening because we didn't have the supervision. Anyway, she dilated. She got her epidural. We were all set to do the cesarean. I found Dr. Monroe. He came up, Dr. Monroe, Milo, and the resident. And I I didn't do the delivery, but I was there as support. It was like nobody was there. We had the best nursing team. They let us deliver in the birthing suite. Five o'clock when we were all finished, all the patients came back into labor. It was like everybody. Wow, I called you. I called yeah. every. I called Stu. I was like jumping for joy. It was like a miracle. Yeah, the stars really aligned. Yes, they did. But, but they happened to align. But if there was always supervision there, yes. And there were young, you know, eager doctors who wanted to keep the well, choice we alive. Have those. Had we have those. We have I'll tell you, I was uh, uh, at this Kaiser with. Susan for five years uh, so I you know I know that location fairly well and I had this idea and um, and we had some discussions within the department about uh, developing a breach team to you know increase the number of uh, uh, experienced attendings who you know were willing to do this and the motivation was just a little low it's. I mean, I think it's a case of you can't teach a new dog old tricks. Think about that for a second. 
I told one of the doctors today I was coming here, and I was very proud today at our staff meeting that I, what we what you're doing and inviting me to come. I was proud of that. Well, of course, everyone thought I it was ridiculous. And one of the new staff who has a high C-section rate just was like, well, why would you want to have a vaginal breach? Why would a doctor even want to? Mm-hmm. I don't want to be sued. I'm going to be mm-hmm. sued. And it was like, and I said to him, you're practicing fear-based medicine again. This is what you and I discuss every time mm-hmm. we're on labor and delivery together. Fear-based medicine never works. Of course, you're going to have complications. Of course, you're going to have problems because that's your role model for yourself. Something's going to happen. And we did talk about some of the risks of the vaginal breach birth. But we didn't talk about any of the risks of the cesarean birth. Well, Dr. Chavira, Milo and I have talked about this, and Milo has always said, And that's just in that birth, and then she'll get pregnant again. And the next pregnancy automatically has some risk involved. So I I also do want to stress that. That's a really good point, Susan, which is that I don't think anybody at this table is anti-cesarean. No, we are not. I think we're we're all in love with a cesarean that that is is given to somebody, uh, offered to somebody who needs one. Yes, and appropriate. For sure, we're all in agreement on that. Mm -hmm. And probably most of us are in agreement for someone who really wants one, who's making an informed choice to have one, um, should also be supported in that choice, I think. Uh, Personally, maybe I'm not totally supporting that. I, I want you to listen to a conversation like this and come away with some facts that mm-hmm. are hard to come by. Mostly, if you find out your breach, you're going to be offered just like Fabriola, a cesarean at 39 weeks, period. If you ask about an external version, you're going to be told about all the risks that could happen, and they're going to be made, blown out of proportion, made to seem like they happen pretty much every time we do one, or 50% chance of, of uh, you know, the the benefits are minimized, the risks are maximized, and you walk away saying, I'm not going to do that. Um, what I'd like you to do is, and same thing with a vaginal birth versus a cesarean birth, I don't have a choice for you, except that you have the information that you can make an informed choice and be supported in that choice. First step is to be able to make the choice. And what we're collectively working on is is trying to create support system for that choice within the system. Yeah. And that was one thing I wanted to mention as a patient when I'm frantically online researching, what is it that I can do? Um, one thing that came up was a hospital in Oregon, and it actually crossed my mind. Maybe I need to go, to go over there and stay a few weeks and <laughs> yeah. deliver there. You would not be the first. So it yeah. would be great if there was some kind of centralized um, hospital or a network of hospitals that could cater Center. to, to mm-hmm. people like that. Because it crossed my mind. I'm like, I'm happy. Packing up and moving. <laughs> Efforts are being put into that. The film was also meant to raise awareness, to let women know mm-hmm. you might have a choice here other than that scheduled cesarean at 39 weeks or multiple choices. Um, and to create more of a demand among people who want that choice to go demand it from there. And it is happening. Our patients are the reason I call Dr. Brock every day or, or Milo pretty much uh, every day last week. I, <laughs> I put you in touch with somebody who was great so or, or Dr. <laughs> Thanks. Or, um, or Dr. Fishbun or Dr. Wu, the handful left here who do it. Um, as people are leaving their OB, and going to someone who specializes in breach because they need that specialty, other OBs are sort of starting to say, maybe I need to think about this. I don't think it's created dramatic action, but there are a handful of starts. sprouts yes, absolutely. that are, are talking about it, thinking about it, looking for training in it. Um, 
and even Dr. Brock who's doing a lot more of them now than he was doing before. So uh, I think the other doctors are, are, are thinking about it and we're trying. It'd be good to have that support because like for me, I have the mindset, if my body can make it, it can take it. And why can't I have that support? Write a letter to, to ACOG. <laughs> yeah. you know That's a great idea. That's, Write it's, a letter. It's, it's a great idea. To, Look, ACOG to got together in 2010. And to your hospitals. I mean, it's cons- going to be consumer driven because, yeah, consumer you know. Driven. National Institute of Health did get together in 2010, not about this, but about VBAC, which was also, it still is very hard to come by in many areas, um, and just did an analytical look at the state of VBAC, vaginal birth after cesarean, and their conclusion was there more people should be offered VBAC, and there's too many obstacles uh, to getting one. And so I think if people do write to ACOG or the National Institute of Health and demand an analysis of breach, now that since 2006, ACOG sort of reversed their policy in Canada, where this all started made a bigger reversal on their policy and they offer more breach and they offer training among older doctors to younger doctors. Um, maybe it can happen. Unfortunately, I don't think it's going to be happening in the next three weeks. <laughs> no. So what options no, but have. I appreciate, thank you so much. I appreciate all the information Pleasure. and I'll definitely go and see you tomorrow. All right. Oh, okay. oh I'm going to come see you tomorrow then. Oh, I would yeah. like to thank, <laughs> thank you so everybody much. for being here. Dr. Barry Brock, Beth Cannon, Susan Minnick, and Dr. Milo Shavira and our guests, Fabriola, Danielle, and Nusha. Um, and uh, all I can say on the way out is if you look at our website, informedpregnancy.com, you'll find a lot more information about breech babies. You'll find a directory of uh, doctors and midwives around the country who offer vaginal breech option um, and, and also other options in terms of uh, trying to encourage your baby into the ideal position. And uh, as always, I encourage you to research the options, weigh the pros and cons as they pertain to you specifically, Make an informed choice and and try to find support for those choices. Thanks for listening to the Informed Pregnancy and Parenting Podcast. Uh, Find us at informedpregnancy.com. And as always, write questions to info at informedpregnancy.com. That concludes our series on Breach Babies 101. Hopefully you've picked up a tremendous amount of information and are in a better position to do more research, have conversations, and make informed choices. You can find our show notes and other information important for breach at informedpregnancy.com. And as always, if you have any questions, feel free to write to info at informedpregnancy.com. This episode is sponsored by an innovative product that's made a big difference for parents and babies alike, Dr. Mom Butt Balm. As a parent of four, I've had my fair share of battles with diaper rash, often resorting to thick, unpleasant pastes. I only recently discovered Dr. Mom Butt Balm, and I was immediately impressed by its pleasant consistency and ease of application. This pediatric-approved skin protectant is free from dyes, preservatives, and zinc oxide, making it perfect for your baby's sensitive skin. It's designed by a doctor who's also a mom, ensuring your little one gets the gentlest care. A small dab is all it takes to soothe and protect, avoiding the mess and hassle of traditional treatments. 
With ingredients like dimethicone and petrolatum, Dr. Mom Butt Balm not only soothes, but also restores your baby's delicate skin. Available on Amazon.com and Walmart.com, it's the smart choice for every parent wanting to keep diaper rash at bay. Remember, with Dr. Mom Butt Balm, nothing comes between you and your baby. Not even diaper rash.